you're designing a future that doesn't include the past. So I think these architects do bear some responsibility. There's a kind of, I feel like kind of whitewashing that's going to be going on right now in the coming years in Beirut. Welcome to the Life Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Beirut is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world, with at least 5,000 years of history under its belt. This is part two of my interview with Habib Bata, intrepid, all-round investigative journalist and, in many ways, the independent international voice of Beirut and Lebanon. In part one, we discussed Beirut, Inc., how a once great city is now a playground for the oligarchy, developers, and star architects, and the many reasons why that is a horrible idea. In this part, we'll zoom in. Habib is well-versed in many topics regarding his city, but he seems to have one particular area of interest. In a city with such an epic history, if you poke a stick in the ground, you'll probably hit something of archaeological and historical interest. Compared to other cities in the region, however, very little of Beirut's archaeological legacy has been explored and documented. For obvious reasons, little work was done during the Civil War between 1975 and 1990. Since then, the focus has been on intense development, which is what Part 1 is all about. I'm going to talk to Habib about his work in creating awareness about the shocking lack of respect for history and archaeological ruins in Beirut, and how developers, the authorities, and even architects are given free reign to erase history as they construct yet another glass and steel apartment building for the rich. In my network, I often get tips sent to me. They're things like, look at this stupid bike lane in my city that they just put in, or this politician in this country is secretly pushing for a mandatory bike helmet law. Habib gets tips from his network too, but I think they sound a lot more interesting. Yeah, my tips are like, oh my God, if we don't save this, you know, there's going to be, this place will be erased forever, <laughs> you know, and yeah. no, there's no mem memory or history of it. So you find yourself constantly running around town sometimes. There's one emergency after another, you know, one uh, space is being destroyed or heritage building is being destroyed or ruins were discovered, you know, left, right, and center. There are all these multiple uh, cranes and, and construction projects happening all the time. There's such a rush to build. And uh, I just passed by on my way, my way here to speak to you. I passed by a site where there's a building now, but was, uh, was a, a Roman uh, water, uh, like, uh, reservoir and process of Roman water plants, you know. It was, it's interesting. It's infrastructure. You know, but it's not like a beautiful temple, but it's also very interesting. But, you know, I, I, fo I photographed that. There were like a, there was a cave structure there and it's gone today and there's a tower next to it. But the plot in front of it, which is a parking lot, they're just excavating it now. And I just was able to look as I was driving, uh, having something else to do. You know, you get caught up and you want to pull over every five minutes in Beirut because there's something going on. You yeah. want to take a picture. And so now I made a note that I'm going to go back uh, later today and, and go see if, if they've dug up any ruins there. But the problem is that that's a very secure area, a lot of army there. So I'm not sure if I can even go. And so my mind started racing and, and worrying already about being stopped and harassed. It's hardly news that there are developers who run rampant everywhere, or politicians who engage in shadowy business, or that there are architects with little respect for urban design or understanding about public space around their shiny new structures. What is news here in Beirut is that this trifecta of urban debauchery has been in play every single day for years. 
How did this happen? So when they decided to create a new city in Beirut, um, they ended up digging up a lot of the past. You're building these towers, you've got to go down deep and create all these holes. Um, so Beirut became at one point the world's biggest archaeological excavation during the 90s after the war ended when this company Solidaire was getting started um, they started to discover all these ruins and Beirut has this rich history that's not very well documented of being one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire and before that you know being a, a prehistoric settlement um, and you know in, in the Phoenician times playing a role as one of the earliest places where uh, there were ports and you know ship ship uh, trade began on this coast of ours uh, so they find these all these ruins and then there's this idea that okay let's per let's preserve a little bit of it but we need to it can't stop the progress so there was the idea that the the excavations can't stop the progress of the construction project and that's a really strange scenario because that means that archaeologists will be rushing around to pick up artifacts, not having time to study them properly, while bulldozers are plowing around them. And so it was a race against bulldozers. And that's not really the kind of way you do archaeology. You need time yeah. to do archaeology. You need to look, compare your notes. Say, I found this here. Looks kind of like what we found over there. Maybe there's some connection here. But there's no time for that when you're running around trying to grab, uh, you know, pots and shards and, and, and columns and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, relics of the past structures and throw them in the back of a truck. So you know, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but in some cases it did feel that way because digs were rushed. And today, you know, we have uh, piles of ruins around the city that we don't know what sites they belong to. You know, we've got about 500 columns sitting in a, a garden in Beirut that we don't know if they belong to the famous Roman law school of Beirut, one of the most important law schools. Uh, one of the world's first law schools that actually helps create the law that's being used around the world today was actually born here in this city of chaos. Uh, it's very ironic. Um, it, was a, it was a great city, the Roman city of Beirut. It was, a, it was a metropolis. It was described as a splendid metropolis. It had you know, a chariot racetrack where there was 1,500 gladiators that fought in one day. Uh, you had a, a great Roman theater. Um, it had uh, probably better infrastructure than today, sidewalks and... Um, aqueducts, whatever. aqueducts, and 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 in this in this in this really important law school it was a law. It was a city of law, a city of law students, a city of law professors, um, and and it had so much history. And so uncovering that history could be a fascinating way to reconnect with your fellow citizens. You know, try to come together over preserving our shared uh, history of what happened in this place. Uh, but instead, you know, the archaeology was treated kind of as an asset to real estate you know okay well, we can get a few columns and pieces here and we'll we'll help decorate landscape our projects you know well, but, but ruins and you know columns are not landscape uh 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 uh, uh, uh props yeah you know these these things need to be displayed in museums they need to be understood where they were found and so uh during these excavations of these uh all across beirut there were over 120 excavations just in the 1990s alone um, and then in the 2000s and, and the past two decades, basically, there have been probably at least 100 more uh, excavations. So we're talking about over 200 excavations 
uh, in the city and the surrounding areas. And today, only about six sites remain in situ in Beirut. So how do we go from 200 or 300 sites and excavations to only five or six that remain today? And those that remain today, as we saw during our tour, are often covered with weeds or garbage. There's barely a sign. They just put up signs after 25 years in some places, but most places don't have signs still. And there's no public access to these sites. So, you know, the public basically forgot. They're overgrown with weeds, you know. Um, there, there's no effort really to, to say, hey, let's create some kind of ex exhibition here. Let's show people what, what, their, what their history is about. You know, let's communicate that to the public. There's very little communication to the public. And so what happens is archaeology becomes thought of as just rocks, um, just pits of rocks that doesn't mean anything. And so when you find them, why would you even save them? So, the, you know, the end of the war really privatized archaeology as well. Instead of there being a ministry of culture with um, power to defend the country's heritage, to stop some of these projects, the Ministry of Culture became like a privatized entity where they were following what the developer rules were put into place. That we need to rush, we need to hurry these things. You know, we can't spend too much time on them. We need to build these towers. And so the war actually gutted public institutions that became replaced by these private entities and these businessmen who became running uh, the country who, who, who became the rulers. So businesses replace the state and that hurts, that has really long-term consequences on your ability to create a state. Now we saw walking around the city, you were showing me building sites and uh, they are, you know, most building sites are blocked off for safety reasons and whatnot, but uh, man, they're taller, the walls here, uh, more surveilled as well, lots of cameras. Um, so you've been known to stick your phone through holes in the walls and, uh, or climb up into buildings and shoot down into it and say, wait, that's like a Roman gate. That might have been, you were telling me, might have been the gate of the city back in the day. And, uh, and then you're a real thorn in the side of these people, right? Uh, yeah. Tell me like how, tell me about the Mr. Mr. Overbudget himself, Jean Nouvel was going to build something here and, uh, and then you climbed up and, and uh, took some photos from an aerial position and went, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, so my reaction to all this is I want to try to document as much history as I can before they destroy it um, and, and give the public some idea of what's going on. Because as you said, when you do these big projects, they create these big construction wall, walls around them and you can't see what's, what they're finding down there. There's no transparency. They never really publish, most of the time they don't publish what they find um, or they haven't yet and it's been years and years. So I thought, let me at least create some evidence for people that there were important ruins here. So maybe someday, at least we can say, well, maybe that fills in some gap in our, in our knowledge, or maybe we can go back and ask what happened to those ruins? You know, what happened there? If you don't have any, I noticed that if you don't have any images of these projects, of these ruins, then it's almost like they don't exist. Uh, so you can never hold people accountable for them. So Jean Nouvel, uh, one of the famous French architects, like so many famous architects in Beirut, unveiled plans for this beautiful tower, you know, uh, uh, if you want to call it beautiful, I don't know, but definitely very modernist, uh, large structure with all glass and steel, uh, mall, 
and a five-star hotel and luxury condos. You know, like we need more of that in Beirut. <laughs> Uh, we already have about 5,000 empty apartments in Beirut because people can't afford these luxury buildings. But they keep building them. You have to wonder why. Um, so uh, this Jean Nouvel project, I had heard, actually was on a very important archaeological site. And so I tried to get pictures. Uh, I tried to slip my uh, camera into little um, gaps in the construction wall. Sometimes they have little gaps in the wall where you can kind of peek, take a peek at your history. Uh, steal a glance of history. Mm. That's what you have to do in Beirut. You have to steal a glance mm. at your history. Um, or steal a picture. Because the Ministry of Culture has claimed that we should not photograph any archaeological sites under excavation in Lebanon. And oh that, it's, that, that, that this will hurt the archaeology if we, if we take a picture if from afar. If you record it, yeah. Yeah, well. which is very strange. And it makes you wonder why they're trying to keep this all this secret. Yeah. Um, they even claim that, oh, you'll steal the research, as if like some aerial photo of a site uh, is getting like a, a rock sample from it, you know, <laughs> I mean, as, if, as if you're going to publish an article, an academic journal based on one photo you took, stole through a crack in a wall. And like other archaeologists um, would be irritated that you uncovered yeah. some history. No, I mean, most archaeologists you speak to think this is a completely ridiculous uh, excuse and that all over the world you can photograph archaeological sites uh, as long as you know, you're not going in there and stealing artifacts or something. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're trying to do that. So, so back to the Jean Nouvel project, um, I decided to try to get a peek at it. Uh, I, I tried to stick my phone into uh, the wall and get some pictures, and I was stopped by some archaeologists who told me that I, I shouldn't take pictures of the site. Um, and that archaeologists told you? Yeah, one archaeologist who was working on the site said, watched me and said, you can't take pictures of the site. Um, and I said, well, why? What if they, what if they bulldoze the site to build a project? She said, oh, we'll, we'll email you pictures. And I just thought that was wrong. You know, what do you mean you'll email, you'll email me pictures once the site is gone? Yeah. I think the public has a right to see their own history and not to be given a picture or some story about what happened to it. Um, that it be censored by this small elite of uh, archaeologists who are sometimes, I believe, you know, very close to developers. Some archaeologists are actually working with developers. Of, yeah. Well, we don't know um, always what the real story is because there isn't no, any transparency. But we know that, you know, deals can be made between people. You know, you, 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 uh, you, you speed up this uh, excavation here and maybe we'll uh, give you uh, some more equipment to dig over there. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if there's, you know, maybe you get an apartment in this building. Yeah, if you, right. If you've, we don't know. It's all speculation. Uh, th that's part of the problem. So, so, so the Jean Nouvel project is called The Landmark. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a hotel and a mall complex. And I, I tried to... Um, to get some images of this archaeology that was being discovered in the site. And I was not allowed to do that. So I snuck into a nearby building. Uh, I went to the rooftop and I started to photograph from an aerial perspective this beautiful, massive archaeological site that had all these important features. Um, it had these uh, great big uh, mosaic floors, intricate mosaic designs that people believe could be one of the oldest churches in the Middle East, the third or fourth century uh, Basilique in our region. Um, there was also a gate structure. So there's this very important ancient city of, of Beirut that gave all these contributions to the world. And here possibly was the front door of this city that we couldn't really locate. What a great discovery. 
um, possibly. Then we have all of these Roman roads. You know, it could, this site could have been a, a wonderful attraction, uh, a park, a public space, where you could look at all these layers of history in the city. Um, but the plan was to build this real estate project. So I took all these pictures. I got pictures of the mosaics, of the walls, of the roads. I uploaded them to my blog. And you know, within hours, it started to go viral. People started to like them and share them. They couldn't believe it because they'd never seen this before. You know, when you're walking along the street, you don't see Beirut because it's so tight and close together and these walls prevent you from seeing what's going on down there. You saw a big photo of Jean Nouvel though on the wall. That's right, that's <laughs> right. Smiling down at you. Yeah, they, they also cover the walls with these artist conceptions of these projects and how they'll change our world. And, and, and just the claim of the project, the project was called Landmark. I mean, the claim was so obnoxious that Beirut, one of the oldest cities in the world, needs a landmark. Uh, from some, you know, uh, French architect, uh, modernist structure, when Beirut has so many other landmarks, you know, so calling yourself the landmark was also quite, I think, egotistical, yeah. um, and goes with the whole mindset behind these projects. So my pictures started to go viral, and uh, they were picked up by other bloggers who have bigger audiences than me. Everybody was talking about the site suddenly, and within two days, the Minister of Culture canceled the project of Jean Nouvel and said this site will be preserved because of its historical importance. Mm -hmm. So uh, some people thought that the pictures being posted online had something to do with that, all the pressure being put on the ministry cool. that had already destroyed so many other sites um, seemed to be for once uh, responding to pressure. The ministry obviously doesn't agree with that. They say that they uh, the ministers had plans to make the site public, but we know that the archaeologists themselves were very concerned and they said that the minister was really a gun-ho about this project just a couple of weeks ago. Mm. So it seems that the pressure did make some impact and we have seen that in many cases now in Lebanon where, you know, what, what, what they could get away with in the 90s, which was basically to take over a whole city, to privatize a whole city, to tear down 700 buildings, they can't really get away with that today because of Facebook and social media where people like myself can go take pictures very easily with a cell phone camera um, and upload them and, and share them onto Facebook pages and groups that have tens of thousands of followers. So that's also what's great now is that there are all these alternative outlets where you can get your message out there. You know, back in the 90s in Beirut, there were five or six TV channels and they were all owned by politicians. So if there was news they didn't want you to hear, you didn't hear it. And there was, if you had a story you wanted to tell, they didn't let you tell it. Um, but now you can tell your own story on your own platform. So a lot of these activist groups in Lebanon today, they have you know, audiences and reaches of, of hundreds of thousands of people. Which, so they're reaching more people on Facebook than some of the old school TV channels are reaching. So that erosion of power that's happening where people are able to challenge projects by publicizing and embarrassing politicians is really challenging the political structure in Beirut. And I think it's a, a subtle thing that's happening, but it's, it's growing every year. So we're walking around, you're showing me all of these building sites, the, the Jean Nouvel one, there's even talking about all the other star architects, uh, Renzo Rafael Maineo. Yeah, and Coolhouse, yeah. um, Coolhouse. So ironic, they've got all these star architects, you know, you've got almost a dozen Pritzker Prize winners that are active in Beirut today, the Nobel Prize of Architecture, right? Yeah. 
Um, how does that jive? How do you have that huge divide? So many beautiful, pretty, you know, multi-million dollar projects being built in a city that can't even take care of basic issues like keep lights on in the streets. Where lies the responsibility of these architects in preserving or insisting that the developers, you know, have five years of archaeology before they build their building? They're not. They're not. They're not doing this. They're just saying yes to these contracts. Where's their responsibility in this uh, in this story? Beirut is a big cash cow for the world's most famous architects. They're all doing projects here, and the world's biggest design and engineering firms have all gotten a piece of the pie of the Beirut reconstruction project. And you have to wonder, this is why I say that when we just blame the Lebanese people for uh, their so-called incompetence, well, a lot of really very competent, you know, uh, global firms are also making money off of this city and are, are part of that. And so I think that they do hold some responsibility. If you, if you, if you, if you sign up for a project that you make millions of dollars off the design, and that's going to destroy, you know, an ancient Phoenician port, which was probably the case in one of uh, the projects that happened in Beirut, where an ancient uh, structure was destroyed to build three towers by Rafael Moneo. Um, and where is his accountability in that? Does he just say, oh, it's not me, I'm just, it's just a client, you know? Well, you can't just say it's just a client. You're part of that process. You know, you're designing a future that doesn't include the past. So I think these architects do bear some responsibility. Um, but there's a kind of, I feel like kind of whitewashing that's gonna go, be going on right now in the coming years in Beirut, where uh, architects like Renzo Piano, Renzo Piano is a famous Italian architect. He's designing uh, several towers for Beirut. One of them is a, um, is a bank, great big glass towers. And during building that, uh, excavating for that project, they found a whole city of ruins on their plot. The entire plot was about a 4,000 square meter plot was wall to wall covered in ruins. Now they're gone and the tower is rising. At the same time, Renzo Piano is involved in another project which is a city history museum. <laughs> so what better way, right, to make up for destroying a city or pretend that you're making up for it, you know, do PR damage control, than to create a museum and say, look what I'm doing here. But the museum project that he's designing is also being built on a plot that's full of ruins, wall-to-wall -wall ruins. So how are you going to build a foundation for a big building if you've got a whole site full of ruins? Why are we building a museum to showcase history by taking out history to build the museum? Yeah. Uh, you know, removing ruins to showcase ruins. Doesn't really make sense. Why not just keep the ruins in place and then build a museum in one of the many other plots in the city? So the architects are designing these structures what, before any excavation ever happens. We don't know what they're finding on these plots. You know, you could find very important ruins, but then you've already designed this huge tower that needs a big foundation, so oh well. And we paid them already, yeah. so, uh, so we, we gotta build it, yeah. Yeah, so you have this situation that happens where really the city of Beirut should have been excavated entirely before construction began. But the way that it's being done is that they're leaving the excavations in the hands of the developers. So if you find ruins on your plot, the Lebanese law says, okay, you have to call the, the antiquities department of the government and they will send some 
people to start to investigate that site and do the archaeological excavations. And you have to pay. The developer has to pay for those excavations. And then when the developer decides that you know, he wants to stop paying for them, the excavations stop. And so the, the decision must be made at some point whether the ruins discovered will stay or whether they will be reintegrated into the project, which is a very interesting scheme mm -hmm. that they've been coming up with these days, or whether the ruins will be just trashed, basically moved, destroyed, not important, used and the project will be like built, used as, yeah. Uh, yeah. which has happened many times. Yeah. And the other options are not really that much better when you think about it, because the reintegration, which is the darling option that they love, they think they can do, it's a win-win, right? We could preserve the history and build a tower. So what happens is you get a bit of history saved, not really the whole project, in some parking garage okay, of a private building. So while in Rome, the Roman chariot racetrack uh, is used today as a festival grounds where people can actually you know, imagine the wonderful heritage of this space. In Beirut, the Roman chariot racetrack was discovered, but it's now been uh, a real estate plot to build six villas. And the architect is saying, oh, we're going to preserve some of the chariot racetrack in the garage of my building. So you'll have a little bit of a stone wall that you can barely see through a window, parked next to some Ferraris and Lamborghinis probably. Yeah. And the problem is, is that those really high-end properties, they're not really keen on having visitors. So it's gonna be very hard to even peek, have a peek at that history. But also, what's the meaning of a stone wall underground in a hole versus having an open air space, you know? I mean, a, a chariot racetrack is not a, in a basement of a building. It should be open air, you know, to really enjoy, to appreciate, to kind of reimagine what this city must have been like. Yeah. And so the reintegration approach is kind of another whitewashing, I feel, where history is treated as uh, landscape, you know, decorative landscaping. You know, we'll put a few Roman columns here or there in between the private garden of our, of our tower. Um, and, you know, God knows who will be allowed in to see it. So another thing they do is they often say things on paper, like, you know, we're going to have this public space, it's going to be accessible to the public. But then in reality, when they build it, you know, you've got police on every corner and checkpoints and you're not even allowed to walk. So in the neighborhood where the chariot racetrack did exist and where the villas will now be built, uh, showcasing supposedly a small portion, uh, you can't even walk on that street today. The, no pedestrians are allowed to walk in front of that building. Wow. Um, because when you build these high-end properties, you get high-end clients, millionaires and billionaires, who don't want to be bothered by the public. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of problems with this idea of reintegration, uh, although they're, they're, they're holding it up now as the holy grail of preservation. And it's worrying because a lot of developers are coming to Beirut and saying, oh, Beirut can be a model for how we develop Syria and, oh, uh, and, and Yemen and uh, Iraq and Libya, um, Beirut as a model for heritage preservation, when it seems to be the opposite of that. When I was interviewing Habib with my crew for the life-size city a few days before this interview, he walked us around the city. It was fun, and it was fascinating. Habib's passion and energy are contagious. We peered over construction hoardings, down at amazing ruins, entire streets with buildings, layer after layer of priceless history. On one site, there was a corner of the ruins covered with tarp. Habib said, oh, that's probably something really important, so they covered it up so we can't see it. We visited the site of the Jean Nouvel landmark development. 
Two board guards were watching the entrance. Habib prepped me and the crew. Right, we just walk in like we own the place and I'll talk to the guards. I don't know what he said to them in Arabic, but it sounded like, chill man, no problem, just a foreign film crew, no big deal, it'll take five minutes. It worked. We stood there looking down at even more spectacular ruins. Quite simply, mind-blowing. But it's not always this easy in Beirut. And it's certainly not always this easy to be Habib. People don't like you to take pictures of ruins on their construction site mm. because they are afraid of a public outcry. And so I've actually been assaulted. I've been threatened and I've also been physically attacked inside uh, real estate projects. Uh, recently there was a project called District S or Districts, I don't know even how you pronounce it, a $300 million project by a British design firm. Um, that is a series of uh, towers and residential complex and penthouses and rooftop uh, pools and, and hanging gardens. It all sounds Yay. wonderful <laughs> if you have millions of dollars to, to, uh, to afford a place there. But there was also a lot of ruins. It was also being built in the Hellenistic quarter of the city where a lot of Greek uh, ruins were when Beirut was an important Greek city before it was a Roman city. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tried to get some shots of it and I was told to get lost and not take photos and that there was no history here by the people on site. And I said, well, if there's no history, then what's the harm in letting me have a look? And finally, they kind of, uh, uh, after some discussion, they allowed me in to a limited portion of the site where I couldn't see anything. They said, look, there's nothing here, so go home now. And I just turned the corner and I saw a, a huge pile of ruins and, and, and a bulldozer you know, taking some ruins apart. And I took a picture of that with my phone. And immediately uh, they demanded that I erase the photo. Um, they surrounded me. Uh, they locked me in. They said, lock the gates. So I was locked in behind these like two meter walls, like 10 meters under uh, the ground in this excavation of a major project. And uh, above us are these containers that contain the offices of the executives. So I'm sure the executives were watching as I was surrounded by five site workers and a site manager. And these aren't even police or military, it's just the no. uh, workers. Private military, basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, they jumped on top of me, two men. Uh, they held my hands behind my back and twisted my arms until my arm was about to break, um, until I dropped my phone. Uh, they uh, forced themselves into my phone, uh, deleted, uh, had me delete all the photos on my phone. They cursed me constantly, uh, cursed my mother, cursed the history of the country. Um, uh, I don't know if we can curse on the show, if I can. Oh, fuck yeah, could, if they were like, yeah, fuck you and fuck your history. Um, it was very telling, that, that's, that, that statement, fuck your history, I thought, um, because it was, it's our history, I don't know why they're treating it as my history. Um, they think it's made up, that you're making this stuff up. Uh, and uh, they threatened to uh, frame me as if, as if I was a, a spy who, who, uh, who broke into the property. When they let me in the front door, they want to say I broke in. So you don't know what kind of, you know, I was very vulnerable at that point. You know, here I am in, in a hole. You know, it's like a mafia movie. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, I was, I finally got out. Um, I reported my story to the police. Um, the police discouraged me from pressing charges because they said if I do press charges, then uh, there's no evidence because I was alone. My camera, my phone was erased. Um, they could say I was, you know, they could hang some crime on me. They're a very powerful company. They have very powerful lawyers. Wow. So the police told me basically, yeah, it's, you're in the danger zone if you want to press charges. You're taking a very risky move. And so I decided I would just file a report. 
So at least it existed as evidence. I didn't feel like I had enough power. I didn't have an attorney, I didn't have anything to take on these people. So, so what happened was, um, is that I thought the case was over. I, I, I went on local TV channels and told my story and you know, I had like two minutes of fame, uh, probably 30 seconds actually on some channels. Uh, the story was pretty much forgotten. And then a few months later, I was writing about another site, which was this Roman uh, chariot racetrack that's now gone. And I went to, to the Ministry of Culture to ask some questions and uh, about this different excavation. And uh, about 10 minutes into the questions, the head of excavations at that time in the government asked my name, because he didn't even ask my name when the interview started, because I was doing it for the BBC. And once he knew my name, he lunged at me, he grabbed my recorder, erased everything on my tape that I was recording our interview, uh, called me a liar and a spy and that I wasn't a journalist. Um, I told him you can call my editor at BBC and he said that was all lies. Uh, he got around to his desk, threatened to call security, uh, called the Minister of Culture um, and said, guess who I have here, Minister, looking at me? I have Habib here, the one who caused all those problems for us with the police. And at that moment I thought, wow, how interesting that I'm reporting an assault on a construction site and the Lebanese Ministry of Culture finds that offensive. So they find that an attack on a developer or a threat to a developer is a threat to them. And they felt threatened by the Lebanese police being involved in one of their excavations. So I found at that point that the government archaeologists were definitely on the side of the developers and not on the side of the history where they should be. And instead of being an advocate and a fighter for preserving Lebanese history, the ministry often seems to give me a rubber stamp on uh, projects and, you know, quote unquote, solutions that, you know, bury the history in these buildings and, uh, or let them, you know, get, get rid of it to build their towers. So I face, you know, uh, uh, threats from high level officials, I've been physically assaulted in the field. Other times I've been chased. I've been told uh, by one developer at the Renzo Piano Project actually, not a developer but a, a watchman of a, of a site, that he recorded my license plate and that they're going to send people to my house to beat me up. And I took the threat seriously because the client of Renzo Piano is the owner of a bank whose former bodyguard actually recently killed someone. Um, and his bodyguards are notorious for being violent and have had many violent incidences in the press about his bodyguards. So he claims, of course, that, oh, those people don't work for me anymore. But, you know, who doesn't work for anybody anymore in Lebanon? You know, I don't know. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's very worrying, you know, and, and I've taken measures. I don't go by myself anymore to document ruins. I try to keep a safe distance um, and I try to go with friends or, or, some, or, or some, somebody at least to, to document if something happens to me. Uh, because when I was locked in that construction site and I, I had no phone, I couldn't do anything and I felt you know, very unsafe. Mm -hmm. And so they do make your uh, life a kind of hell sometimes when you're trying to write about history and document the destruction that's happening in Beirut today. And I, and I often feel like surveilled. I feel like there are cameras all over downtown. Um, you know, it, it is not a very comfortable business. You would think that, you know, documenting history and trying to understand the story of our, our story 
uh, would be something that everybody could appreciate. It'd be something that the government would support you in doing. But instead we have this uh, shroud of secrecy, we have this violent policing of sites and information. So it's, 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 uh, it's a very, yeah, it can be a very hard job and a lot of people don't want to do journalism for that reason. But it's funny because people always ask me, what, what threats do you face as a journalist working in the Middle East? You know, those religious fundamentalists are out to get you and militias and, and, and all this stuff. And actually, the biggest threat I've ever faced is not from militias. You know, I have been censored at some points, um, but they were polite about it, at least. I've been the most physically aggravated and assaulted by, not by militias and religious groups, but by private capital, by private corporations who are often uh, really well-established uh, in Western countries. These are developers and their henchmen. Think about it. Property developers sending people to beat up a journalist for wanting to record historical ruins, doing so with the blessing of the Lebanese authorities. Habib isn't some industrial spy trying to expose state or corporate secrets or uncover illegal detention sites used by the American military or infiltrating human trafficking networks. He's a journalist trying to photograph archaeological ruins in the interest of preserving history. Yeah, who would have thought that, you know, the danger zone was not a war zone, but a, a, a reconstruction zone. Well, Habib, so when we were filming here and we were trying to get our permits and we're lining up the whole show, complicated process, you know, for the team, but, um, you know, we do this all over the world here. There was a lot of uh, discussion with, uh, from the production office about, yeah, don't talk about sensitive issues. Don't mention Israel um, for obvious reasons in this region. Um, and we have a list of our guests uh, and we were told, don't put your name on there. <laughs> don't put Habib Bata's name on there. And our local producer was, met the mayor for, for some reason, uh, or the governor. And he was, what's this show? Well, these, these tourists, all they want to do is, you know, film all the bullet holes and everything. You know, we want to show them the, how we're rising again and everything. And The phoenix the rising from the ashes. Oh, that's the, that's the, uh, the cliche that they love. Oh, God. But she was showing the list and your name wasn't on it. When, and because we were afraid that if they saw your name, we, we would just lose all the permits and, you know, everything would just, you know, yeah. tank. So, uh, so that's the best reason to want to talk to you, of course, man. No, it's, um, it's... I think it's too bad. I mean, a lot of people often say, oh, it's a badge of honor if I'm banned or if I'm blacklisted because I'm doing my job. And I don't think that we have to be blacklisted as journalists to do our job. And we shouldn't be. You know, I, I, it's, it's a shame that I can't do my work more openly. It's a shame that um, they don't treat what I do as an asset. You know, on my website, on BearReport.com, you can find images of... Uh, you know, dozens of archaeological sites in Lebanon that don't exist anywhere else. I'm just trying to document the history to give people something that they can reference in the future. So we could just try to create some record, a public record. I'm trying to create a public record of these excavations. They don't like that. You know, they don't, they want to be controlling the message. They want to be in control of it. They don't want to be asking critical questions like, why don't we build a park here, you know, so that everybody can enjoy it so that school kids can enjoy it, so that people, you know, having their lunch can enjoy it, you know, in a space, in a city where we have no green space, you know, one of the most concrete jungle of a city that there is. Um, they don't want me to ask those questions. They want me to say, oh, let's celebrate the development. Let's celebrate the next 40, 50, 60 story tower and the latest hotel that no one will be able to afford, you know, and the latest restaurants that are gonna be 100 bucks a, a, a person. You know, why do, we, why do I want to celebrate that? They, they want a PR version. 
Okay, and that's how Dubai is. You know, you can't even be a journalist, I think, in Dubai. I mean, it's it's a complete, you know, praise the government and praise developers constantly and say everything is doing great. So at least we can still do our work in Lebanon. You know, at least I can still be that critical voice. It's not as bad as places like Dubai where people get arrested for any kind of critique um, or have been in jail for that. Uh, but you also get this kind of uh, effort to tarnish your reputation. And these uh, companies like Solidar have tried to tarnish my reputation. They've tried to paint me as a bad guy, as a liar, and all these things. And yeah, a lot of journalists throughout history, I think, um, who uncover things that are not pleasant, they get uh, the damage control for the, the, the person who's on the receiving end is to paint you as some uh, misfit or uh, you know, person who's got their facts wrong or, or just some overexcited uh, person. And once, once a minister told me, why don't you get married? That's your problem. <laughs> you know, I mean, imagine a minister telling you to get married. Yeah. Um, uh, I did get married, and I still, <laughs> I still have these problems. <laughs> didn't work out. Still didn't work out. But uh, you know, uh, that's sadly the case. And 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 because of that, uh, a lot of young people aspire to uh, aspire to access. They they want to be in the club. You know, they don't they don't want to be on the outside. So a lot of young people end up, you know, being promoters of the government and uh, cheerleaders uh, just to be on the good side. No one wants to be on the bad side. You know, nobody, you know, and, and it's also costly for you to be on the critical side because, you know, they, they might, you know, you might hurt your job prospects in the future or um, if you're an activist, employers might not like that. So a lot of people started to be sycophants, you know, and, and all these influencers now on Instagram, you know, and saying things like, you know, Lebanon's great, Lebanon's beautiful, live love Beirut and live love this and live love that. And so we have this whole culture now of, of, of praising uh, each other when we're living in a, in a disaster zone, basically, in many ways. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be that way. You know, there's, there is hope to fix things. But if we keep, you know, trying to find the positive image, you know, and trying to, you know, brown nose and promote people in power, then I think we're only going to get worse. So uh, critical thinking is often interpreted as negative thinking. Criticism is negative. But we know that if we don't learn from our mistakes, then we're going to keep making them. But as it is, we have this whole obsession now with a very PR advertising world of real estate and you know, uh, artist conceptions of, of things. And, and, and just published lies, basically, about you know, great big proclamations about how wonderful the city is going to be, and in reality, we're still living in this very difficult situation. When a city bulldozes its history and replaces it with shopping malls and expensive towers, you wonder what tourists are expected to experience in a city like Beirut. The tourism narrative about Beirut can be boiled down to nightlife and beaches. The old moniker for this city, the Paris of the East, still lingers rather optimistically. But that's about it. In a continuation of this comedy of errors, there is a new tourism addition to the streetscape in Beirut. And there is a wave of publicity orchestrated by the state to try and sell this bizarre new non-place that Beirut risks becoming. Since I've been here, uh, the launch of the hop-on, hop-off tourist bus <laughs> uh, happened. It's a thing. I've seen them uh, trudging around town empty. Empty. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, oh yeah, you you said this. just like the fancy towers. Exactly, you said it a couple of days ago. Yeah, like uh, you know, we don't have any public buses here really, and uh, now we have a tourist bus. 
And I also find that ironic. You you don't have any anything to see in in Beirut. You know, uh, mm. there's the nightlife. Ooh, yeah, that's great. I've been a part of it, so it is yeah. great. But uh, don't need a bus for that. You don't need a bus for that, man. But I mean, yeah, like like it's that's just hilarious. I was invited, uh, very politely. Uh, very innocently, probably uh, didn't realize what I was going to be talking about here in Beirut to to go to a bloggers event on one of these buses and and you know blog positively about it to my social media crowd and I went ah that's a bit off brand for me you know like we're trying to get rid of these buses in European cities and trying to you know limit mass tourism and stuff so I was going yet yeah, thank you but no thank you um, my God it's just you know like who is Beirut for man you know. You know, the, the, the PR events in the city are just out of this world. I mean, one thing that's they're really good at in Lebanon is PR and advertising mm. and putting on a good face, putting lipstick on a pig. Yeah. Um, so all these bloggers these days have become just brand ambassadors, you know, and, and event attenders. Event you know? attenders. Yeah, so, so there are always events yeah. in Beirut. Uh, all these, there's so many PR and advertising companies in Lebanon that are uh, trying to make these destructive projects look good. And so they do these uh, big uh, press conferences at fancy five-star hotels, and they do a big lunch okay, for I everybody. Was, I was at one of them, sorry. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was yeah. at an iftar, I was invited, and it was great food, but yeah, yeah oh my God. Yeah, yeah but they, so they, they get all these people, yeah. come to our event, have free food, take a few pictures, talk about how great our project is, don't ask any critical questions, don't be a negative, bad guy like Habib. I don't get those advice anymore, you know, because they don't want me to come and ask questions about these projects. So it's, it's, um, don't you grow up and be a Habib. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Crazy kid. So, um, yeah, they're very, very different meeting in, in, in Western in the U S right. It would yeah. don't be a Habib for other reasons, but, uh, here also, uh, I face, uh, issues. Yeah. And so I, I have to, once I actually wrote about, I called out, you know, all these gifts, you know, some ministers even give gifts to bloggers. They, you know, one minister gave free phones out, gave free tablets and internet packages for free, um, you know, t-shirts and memorabilia and uh, raffles even I've seen in some ministries. Wow. Uh, so, you know, it's bribery. I think it's bribery. I wrote once about it and, you know, I got the ire of all these bloggers in Lebanon who, who wanted to curse me and yell at me because I criticize these free trips, you know, even giving free trips to other countries and all these freebies um, that are that are being handed out, and the and and it's the same with the mainstream press. So the mainstream press and the so-called alternative bloggers are kind of very much similar in attending these press conferences with all these free lunches. And as a journalist, I got invited to a lot of them too, but you know, I didn't get re-invited to many of them yeah, right. after I wrote my articles. So um, we need to really look at this culture of of promoting things um, that we don't think about what we're promoting. Uh, and I think this, this double-decker bus that you're speaking about, it's, it's a good metaphor for, for the kind of way things are done in Beirut and the way development is done, which is that we're always trying to please and appease, especially Western tourists and wealthy tourists from the Gulf countries. We want to impress the rich and powerful. We're always trying to impress others and never really serving our own population yeah. so while there's no public transport for locals oh well now we have this fancy london double-decker bus that makes no sense on these tight roads in beirut and so gaudy and ugly like they are everywhere really yeah. my god yeah just sticks and out like a sore thumb the result is they're empty taking up space you know waste of resources so actually the whole city of 
downtown Beirut was rebuilt in the image of Western cities. They wanted to imitate capitals like Monte Carlo and um, Saint-Tropez and, and, uh, and Barcelona. That's what they wanted. That was their model. Or London or, or, or parts of the U.S. And they want to attract those kind of people. They want to attract people from those countries. And so you're, well, what happens when you're building? What's the problem with that? What's the problem with building a city for people that are not your own people? You know, you're always catering to a foreign interest. Whether it's politically or it's a tourism or business, that's, what, that's the case in Lebanon. And, and the result, the problem is, is that you leave your people last. Your people are the last priority. Um, so we don't get that public transport. We don't get housing, you know, nice housing projects for people who need it in Lebanon. You know, there's a crisis of housing in Lebanon. There's always empty apartments. Why? Because they're building stuff for the wrong people. Um, and that's always been the case in Lebanon. And so when you do, you also leave yourself very vulnerable if you focus totally on, on, on foreigners. Um, if, if something happens in the country, if there's a war, if there's instability, and there always is in Lebanon, then those tourists stop coming and those tourist attractions become empty. So maybe it's a good lesson from Beirut is to invest in your own people, you know, and to cater to local needs. When you got people who don't have water and electricity and don't have garbage collection and they're living in garbage, you shouldn't be spending a lot of money on attracting foreigners with fancy, you know, marble floors and fancy buses and uh, fancy streetlights um, and the best hotels in the world and the greatest architects in the world, you know, why not spend some of that money and invest in your own people first if you want to create a long-term future? Otherwise, you're doing a bunch of white elephant projects that are going to be empty for years and have been empty for years and a worsening situation. Actually, those real estate developments not only burden the environment and destroy history, but they also raise the rent. They raise the property values. So people are leaving the city. They can't even afford to live in their own city because of all this speculative real estate going on. Condemnation is vocal, widespread, and universal when groups like the Taliban or ISIL destroy historical artifacts or ruins. It's front-page news. And yet here in Beirut, it happens every single day. And the silence is deafening. I've read about examples from Italy where dodgy developers have excavated a site in the dead of night and shipped the rubble off before anyone knew what was happening in order to avoid the financial inconvenience of discovering historical ruins. Here in Beirut, this practice is institutionalized, and it's legitimate. What's even worse about Beirut is that we don't know what is being destroyed. Here in one of the oldest cities in the world, developers and star architects have been given free reign by the ruling class to do whatever they want, without any accountability. One man, not a radical, not even an archaeologist, just a journalist who loves his city, continues to try and document the destruction. Like Habib said, you can't design a future that doesn't include the past. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval-Anderson. Thanks for listening.